Welcome to Piecing It All Together. I'm Randy Woodley. I'm Bo Sanders. And we have two very special guests with us today. Two of our very favorite conversation partners. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. This is going to be episode 42, and it is a live chat Saturday morning. May the 4th be with you, as they say. And also with you. <laughs> is that the proper response? Sure. Okay, let's introduce our, um, our uh, uh, conversation partners. We okay. have ever so effervescent Alicia Monroe with us. Thank oh, you. Really? Good to be and here. We have the ever so wise... Uh, comedian Ryan Smith. Yeah, aspiring Jedi Master, really. <laughs> That's a lofty goal. Sure. Well, for some, it's pretty easy for me. <laughs> uh, he really is a sage comedian. That's how I think it right. <laughs> wow. So since our last live chat, we've put out several podcasts. I'm going to go through them real quick and just see if either of you would like to pick up on any themes or uh, circle back on anything that we talked about. So episode 36 was about reconciliation. Um, Randy uh, helped us think through uh, ways to, to do that, and we talked about different models. Episode 38 was probably my favorite so far. Uh, it was about community and the difficulties of mutual discernment and accountability and some of the tricks about, especially intentional community. Uh, episode 39 was an Earth Day a cross-pollination podcast with a different podcast, and so uh, that was an interesting experiment. Episode 40 was uh, Resurrect Ayla Hay, where Edith and Randy walked around the farm with me. And then most recently, episode 41 was co-learning. We uh, celebrated Randy's uh, 12 year in the 12 years in the classroom, sort of coming to an end in that format. So that that has been since our last live chat. Is there anything that either of you would like to pick up on there? I listened to the co-learning episode this week, and um, about the same time, I got the syllabus for my summer class. Um, and there's a whole section in this syllabus that isn't in any of the syllabuses I've seen since I've started seminary, and it's a conversation about safeness. And um, talking about what it means to um, hold space. And it's not necessarily about not getting your feelings hurt, but um, I don't know, it was interesting. And um, I appreciated um, that Randy included that in the syllabus. Oh, that was in Randy's syllabus. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. So. Randy, can you tell us why you included that? Um, what part exactly, again? It's the um, section that says word about safeness. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I include that in every syllabus. Yeah. Or yeah. in every syllabi, as we say. Yeah. That was um, the first time I saw it. Yeah, I, I think I have a different idea about what safeness in the classroom is than my colleagues do. They talk about it as if it's something um, that we have to like guard everybody about talking about the wrong thing sometimes so that people don't get offended or re-traumatized perhaps. Um, and I talk about it in a little bit different way, um, maybe. Um, I like to um, 
have everybody agree to stay at the table and agree that we're going to think the best intentions of one another. And um, there's a whole, I mean, this, this thing I'm trying to wrap up is I don't have in front of me, but there's a whole story behind that. And, um, you know, I talk about growing up in very kind of on the streets atmosphere and I had to rediscover like that as an advantage. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the thing that I, I do is like to talk about the, uh, um, the classroom shouldn't be a place. It should be the opposite of a place where we have to guard our opinions. It should be a place where all questions and all opinions are welcome. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I don't know. Is there a particular thing you want to read there, uh, Alicia? Because I would have it in front of me and pull out some things if, uh, but uh, I don't. So, um, I mean, it took me a long, long time to construct that thing. Um, the part, let's see, the first paragraph was what you were talking about in terms of where you grew up. Um, and it says, I realize there is a great deal of valid concern over co-learning gathering safeness. Uh, perhaps I view it differently than some of my colleagues. In my experience, safeness has nothing to do with the subject matter at hand, but rather safeness is primarily about our respect for the sacredness of how we handle the conversation. With social norms changing at a rapid pace, especially in the current political climate, I am discovering that people are afraid to talk honestly with one another, although many, including myself at times, are willing to talk at one another. This type of climate only promotes isolationism, binary position-taking, and we-slash-they attitudes. Education is about people learning from each other. How can we learn if we cannot talk with one another honestly? Obviously, we can't. But back to the danger. What if it goes too far? Yeah, and then sort of say in the first class, um, you know, if it goes too far, one of you or I will stop it. Mm-hmm. We'll take a breath. We'll think. We'll give some time for people to um, uh, decide if they want to come back to a more respectful level. Um, perhaps apologies. Um, it's up to the person. but uh, And then decide as a class whether we want to go forward with that conversation, especially with the person who may be offended at the time. And so, yeah, and that's happened a few times. Um now, I just feel like um, that we have to talk to one another. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's it's kind of like that silly thing that uh, oh, I remember when uh, George uh, Walker Bush um, said, um, you know, we uh, we don't we don't talk to terrorists. You know, we don't deal with terrorists. And it's like, well, how the hell are you ever going to get peace if you don't talk to your enemies? Right. You know, um, you make peace with your enemies. I think that's a, actually a line from Gathering the Thrones. <laughs> uh, <laughs> opposite ideas of you and uh, both understand their position and understand their humanness, which I think is, uh, we may even touch on in that show, so, is to... Um, to not just find out what we have in common, but, but, but to learn to accept and maybe even celebrate some of the differences. And I think that's, what's lacking in our conversations um, today. Um, 
So instead we demonize one another and, and, uh, and, and so I just think we've got to be able to commit to sitting at the table and talking with people who see life very differently than we do in order to go forward. Ryan, I'd love to get your thoughts on safe uh, space and safe conversation. And then I'm going to say something um, that's either going to be elitist or judgmental, but I want to give you the chance to start. Well, I'm less interested in safety if it means that we can't share our hearts. Um, uh, You know, I've heard people hold back so much that I'm not really sure we're having a conversation. And sometimes when I finally am able to break through, I think that that quote-unquote safe barrier and someone blows up, I want to say, Hey, thanks for showing up. You know, I really appreciate it. That's great. Now I feel like we can actually talk. Uh, but I've also also found that, you know, with people who have very different perspectives than I do, I often will ask them, well, what's behind that? You know, and they go, well, and, they, and they're sticking to facts and stats and figures and I don't know, alternative facts, those kinds of things. And, and I go, well, no, 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 no. That's, that's just talking points. What's behind that? Uh, what is your story, your experience that leads you to believe this? Uh, and engaging in that human conversation, I find that uh, it kind of tends to disarm folks if they let you in. And if not, they put up a bigger wall and call it peaches. Um, that's a joke, by the way, for the border wall. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I do think that it's really important to really get to the humanness uh, of the conversation. Because to me, that you can't get anywhere, uh, you know, politics is case in point, you can't get anywhere just arguing the talking points. It, it doesn't make any difference at least from what I've seen. Well, and I would say I've had conversations with people who it gives you this emotional distance to just rattle off statistics and reports. And I read this thing. And so it must be factual. Um, And a lot of the conversations that I'm referring to had to do with race. Um, And so my response to those people, one person in particular is like, so when you're talking to people in those situations who live that life, you know, what, what are their stories? What are you hearing from those people? And invariably I got no response because they're not talking to those people and they're just reading the reports. And I think going back to what Randy said about understanding humanness, like if we, if we insulate ourselves with just facts and statistics and don't engage with people in a relational way, we're not going to, nothing's going to change. Yeah. And, and I will just say too, I'm married into a different culture than my own. And in, in, in dealing with that, I made about every cultural mistake possible, which is kind of the only way you learn. Uh, and I had to give myself permission to do that. I think my in-laws had to give me permission to do that, which I think took longer than myself giving or me giving myself permission. But one of the things that I noticed was, you know what, um, even though I'm a white guy and I want to kind of like feel like I need to take a step back and and everything, I noticed that I was starting to lose who I was Mm -hmm. in doing that. And it was finally this moment where I was like, you know what, 
there's some cultural things here that I think are complete bullshit. Um, and this whole machismo attitude of men like laughing at me because I got my wife a glass of water. Well, guess what? We're happily married. How's your relationship? And actually, I've noticed that uh, things actually started to change after that. And now it's expected, the women in the family expect their husbands to go get them a, a plate of food, which is the opposite of how it was when I first started there. But there's this, there's a great cultural exchange there mm. where, you know what, I can call out things that I'm like, you know what, no, this isn't right. Uh, and it doesn't mean I'm being racist. Um, if anything, it means I'm trying to stand up for my wife. Interesting. Every time they have to do it, they're thinking, you know, this is Ryan's fault. <laughs> Glad to be here. <laughs> so I exist in an interesting space in that I, I'm always navigating two different cultures or subcultures. Um, you know, I come from a more of an evangelical background as far as my church and family life goes. And then my, in my academic life, I exist in a very progressive space. And I, you know, I went to Claremont, which is on the cutting edge of um, all of this stuff, whether it's identity politics or, you know, creating safe space and reconciliation. And so it was interesting for me to be at Claremont for six years and uh, especially in L.A. where it's so diverse. And then I came back to, to teach at the seminary here in Portland. And I noticed a couple things that were really shocking to me. Um, one was that uh, evangelicals had just begun to use the word deconstruction. But by that, they only meant ask the most elementary questions about the foundation's that were contributing uh, to their faith. And so it was clumsy. I'll just admit it was clumsy. And still to this day, when I, when I hear somebody say, you know, deconstruction in, in light of their uh, graduate education, I'm always like, uh, those are the entry level questions. And I know this sounds very elitist and judgmental, but I'm always shocked at what they call deconstruction because they, all they mean basically is we've started asking questions about what's going on behind the scenes, like the question behind the question, which is a gr great place to start. But the other place I noticed it was in diversity and um, that it's, it's shocking to me how clumsy um, some groups are with diversity, especially racial diversity, and don't even know that they're fully participating in tokenism where they're like, they're not doing real identity politics where a person brings their whole self, uh, you know, and, and their, their experience of humanness and their social location. But they just mean they're checking a box like, oh, we got a person of color or we got a woman. And they're checking off boxes like, you know, the, the side of your Starbucks cup where you check like decaf and soy. And it's, it's almost insulting. And so to be at a place like, for me, Claremont, that's been doing identity politics for more than 40 years and has worked out some of the clumsiness and some of the glitches in the system, to then come back into a subculture where uh, they're just now beginning to address issues of race, it was honestly shocking. 
All of that is to say that this thing with a uh, safe space is probably my least favorite one because now, you know, I'm in the United Methodist and, and they're very liberal slash progressive, whatever you want to call it. So they've already moved on from safe space. They're now uh, dreaming of brave space. That's their new thing, brave space. And it's not just a cliche and it's not just rhetoric. Like they actually mean like bring all that you are to the table and you be you, you tell you speak your truth and everyone else can deal with it. And so like, it's always interesting for me, like Alicia, you said, this is the first time something like this has showed up in any of your syllabi up to this point. And that's great. But it's weird for me because I exist in a world where we, you know, safe space is already old news and now we're working on brave space. And it actually infringes on all of my cultural privilege. I actually like, I get why people say, oh, safe space. Like everyone's a snowflake and we need to handle everybody with kid gloves. Like I get why that hesitation comes up um, when when you're used to saying your truth, but not listening to a different perspective and why that infringes on your privilege. I get it, but it's, it's just, it's really fun for me uh, to exist in these two worlds and, and to see how different people try and navigate it or, or, or initiate that conversation. And I'm always shocked at how clumsy it is. That's all I want to say is how difficult it is to initiate that sort of atmosphere where people can bring their whole self to the conversation and recognize when other people are doing the same thing. Uh, it's a difficult thing to initiate, to create that space where people bring their whole humanness to this, to the conversation. Sure. Uh, and of course my sort of running line is that most churches are not safe spaces and you're not allowed to bring your whole person or your family. Yeah. So um, I've left churches over this issue. Um, I've been having conversations with people who've come out of the churches um, uh, where they're been taught not to trust their feelings or their intuition. And there's this uh, physical and spiritual divorce that happens in your body when you're told that you don't trust your feelings, don't trust your intuition, except you can do it in prayer when you're with the Holy Spirit in the context of church. But anything outside the script, it's not allowed and it's shut down. So um, I appreciate hearing stories from churches where the safe space is, we've moved on past that and we're talking about brave spaces. Unfortunately, that's not the reality for a lot of people who are um, in these church cultures where it's not allowed. Yeah. That is an amazing insight. I, I, I want to say two things. One, uh, wasn't that very elitist of you both? To, to <laughs> I And also you know, the, um, the, the thing that I was calling safe space, I think what I heard you describe is actually brave space, but, you know, we're categorizing, are we categorizing those by their name or by the function? Yes. Um, no, I love that Alicia read that because that's exactly what was described. Yeah. Yeah. But the other thing that I had issue with that you talked about was the fact that you said tokenism uh, is almost embarrassing. Oh, what? Say more. Well, almost. <laughs> Randy, I qualify <laughs> everything. It's just, it's a habit. I'm so sorry. I always do that. So, so 
So first of all, there's never been a safe space in, uh, when people of color talk to white people. There's never been a safe space for people of color, ever, okay? So there's no safe space. So really what we're talking about is how to accommodate white people, right? That's what it's all about. Secondly, tokenism not only is is downright embarrassing for people of color, but it makes white people feel like they have solved the problem and done their work, and so they no longer have to do their work anymore. So it's worse than it was before. Oh, Lord. Okay. All right, hold on. That is that is wild. So I just want to... I just want to revisit that for a second. So in one sense, it for the person of color, if, if, the, if there's a, a tokenism in place, it's embarrassing for them. They, they know it because uh, they're much more uh, conditioned and uh, familiar with what's going on, and they may see it and other people don't see it. Well, they may see it, but they may be so colonized that they don't, Admit it. They know what's going on at some level, but they pretend like it's not going on, right? Yeah. Um, so I have always known uh, about uh, a, a particular place of work that I won't mention um, that we all may be familiar with that I was being tokenized, right? And I would not allow myself to believe that that what I was bringing to the table was important to them because I, f- I found out it wasn't. Um, uh, it was important for other reasons, uh, including like, oh, we're exotic and we've checked a box, right? For recruitment. So, yes. So, but what that does is it, I found out, uh, is it creates a sense in them that, oh, this is kind of like, well, we got away with this. We didn't really have to change the structure. And so then you can actually hire. You, it doesn't have to be like one person of color. It can be almost all people of color if they're still operating according to the status quo of that system, which is white normalcy. And you can say we're the most diverse place there is and all still be tokens, and the whole whole place could be, uh, uh, you know, full of that tokenism, uh, even though you have, say, not a majority of white people. Now, does that make sense to you? Yes, and so I've always said it this way. I used to say it this way a long time ago. You can take a a a, a bad system and replace every person in the system. But if the DNA is the same, if the norm is the same, that the system's going to be the exact same no matter what color the people are in it. Oof. I'm also very aware of the self-satisfaction of uh, people who uh, pat themselves on the back for whatever it is, hiring or who gets the microphone or who's on stage and who has the spotlight without changing the systemic issues. Uh, I often joke that the most common injury amongst liberal churches is tennis elbow from patting ourselves in the back. It's an epidemic. You brought that up. Let me ask about um, the denomination that you mentioned. Um, 
Do you guys have a president? Uh, like a who's in charge of that thing? Council, a council of bishops. Council of bishops. How, how many uh, people of color are on that? Uh, I don't know the exact statistic, but it is quite diverse, mm-hmm. and uh, especially in gender, but also in race. Okay, and so. Are the, I, I assume then that in that brave space that they all talked about the fact that you guys are not, and you women are not tokens, but what you have to say is probably even more important than what we have to say as white folks in charge, because we've been in that same system for such a long time. So how do you know about that stuff if they've had those conversations? Well, I happen to be doing my PhD research on it. I went to the archives at Drew University, and I actually looked up the initiative in the late 60s and early 70s that they gave money to it. They changed the bylaws, and they changed the way that they recruit and empower people for education. So that's actually what I'm writing my dissertation on. Uh, that's the only reason I know about it. Was that the money that they decided to give instead of giving to the Black Manifesto that was requested of them? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. 1969. Same window. Your uh, denominations were asked to give reparations money in the black manifesto. And uh, a lot of them, instead of giving it to them, they put money toward diversity efforts in their own denominations. Yeah. Same window of time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, you know, that was, it was actually interesting. One more thing, Ryan, real quick. Oh, yeah. And so part of the deal with reparations is that the people who are given it don't get to decide what it's used for. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. So I'd love to have a conversation with, you know, in that brave space about this. Oof. Is this a brave space right now? <laughs> Seems like it. Seems like it. <laughs> I thought our, our whole program was based on that. Uh, yeah. yeah. Brian, what were you going to say? Well, I'm glad Randy went there because that was what I was, all this was bringing to mind was I was having a conversation with really woke Portland um, progressives, uh, <laughs> which uh, I, I say tongue in cheek because we were talking about somehow it got on to, to native stuff. Anytime I'm talking with people, it usually gets on to native reconciliation and valuing the land because, you know, I think that's probably the most important thing we need to talk about. But, uh, you know, these, these woke Portland liberals were talking about, yeah, you know, we need reparations for native people. What's been done has been terrible. And I was like, well, what does that look like to you? And they're talking about, you know, college funds and this and that. And, and, uh, and I was like, you know, that's interesting. And I said, I think the first thing you need, we should probably do is, is ask native communities, Hey, hey, what do you think should be done? Uh, first off, and like, well, yeah. I was like, oh, okay. Um, I said, what do you think is most valuable? What do you think would help out the most? And, and, you know, again, it was all this different money talk. And I said, you know, look, I cannot speak for any native person. I can't speak for any, anybody but myself, really. I said, but it sounds to me like you're throwing money in a problem when you might want to learn about the actual culture and traditions. And I said, perhaps land might be one of the main things that needs to be given back and understood that this, especially with climate change, 
you know, and, and I was trying to talk about it and it's like, well, I don't know how that would work, you know, because then you have, you know, all these different states and, and are people going to have the people are going to have to give up their land and then the people are going to have to move out of their homes. And I'm going, okay, see, I thought you cared about what native people would want and need and desire, but now we're coming with, well, that won't work because of this, but it's much easier for me to write a check. Right. And so reparations to me, I, I, I get, I don't know. I get um, nervous when I hear people talk about that because to me, it just sounds like writing a, writing a check and saying, okay, now everything's okay. Yeah. So the other thing is that let's talk about the power dynamics of the discussion right now, what we're talking about. So the whole problem is that, and we're talking about race. So, um, and we could do the same thing. We talk about, you know, gender and everything else, but the problem is that the, the principle that I see that has to happen for this to be a real thing is there has to be power given over without strings attached, right? It's like, so even, even though you say, well, it's easy to write a check, Ryan, it's not that easy sometimes for people in power to write a check if they don't have control of what's going to happen to the money. Case in point, all the denominations that didn't give to the Black Manifesto reparations idea but instead decided here's a better idea of what to do with it. That not only reinforced their sense of power, but it also and, and, and gave them the sense of control. Um, uh, but it also um, like bought off the diversity efforts or the people of color that they were trying to do or whatever, because they didn't go to them and say, you know, here's this money. What do you want to do with it? Right. Um, at least to my knowledge. So, so I could be wrong about that, but that's usually the case. So there's this sense that it reinforces this, this kind of thing that we're talking about here, this brave space and uh, the kind of reparations that we're talking about, reinforces a sense of, of white normalcy, white superiority, because, and I, I think Alicia just heard me say this up in um, Seattle recently, because white society, that white supremacy society, the part that's, that, as you say, Bo, is baked in the bread, the part that is inseparable from being in a country for 500 years that's based on that, um, has to maintain a sense of superiority. So, therefore, if, if we are empowering ourselves as Native people, as African Americans, as women, etc., then we are disrupting that system. We're disrupting that norm. And that's exactly where the disruption has to take place and where power has to be given up and given to that's empowering. Uh, because I guess to put it very bluntly, white people need native people to be dependent on them. They need women to be subjected. They need black people to be all the, you know, nasty things that white folks sometimes say about black folks because it enforces, reinforces a sense of superiority. And part of that whole thing is letting go of the power. And until that's, that's gotten rid of, then we are accommodating, which is similar to tokenism. So whenever the phrase social justice comes up, I always push back at two levels and I say, hold on. I got to, I'm sorry, this phrase gets thrown around so freely that I have to ask a question. Number one, talk to me about a type of justice that isn't social. 
it seems to me that all justice is social. I, I don't know of one that isn't. So first of all, I don't even know why we need the phrase social, except that we mean justice for someone else, not for me. That's the social part. But the second thing is, and this is going back to Ryan, is, you know, when people talk about race, it's amazing how if you talk about race, uh, the conversation can keep going. And the minute you introduce Native issues, that is a showstopper. That conversation will come to a screeching halt because I'll ask people, tell me what justice looks like for Natives, right? And does it mean they get their land back? And if it doesn't, you know what we're talking about then is reconciliation, not justice. Let's stop talking about social justice if we don't know what justice looks like for natives. Well, yeah, that's, I, not, that's not reconciliation either, so we just need to stop talking about that if we're not going <laughs> to. <laughs> oh, man. Well, well, the thing is, though, is what I constantly see, and maybe maybe I'm a cynic, but when we're talking about reparations, reconciliation, justice, enter in any other word there, um, I I constantly see an extension of that white supremacy, white normalcy, Randy, that you're talking about, because it's what I often will hear is, well, look at us white people and all the good things we want to do and see and, and hand off to all these people that, that we've hurt. And it's almost like now, now I've done, you know, I want to see reparations for people of color. Where's my award? Where's my trophy for doing that? And that's what I see, and, that, and that's what starts to bother me is, is it really reconciliation? Is it really reparations if that's still the perspective? Now, I'm not sure that anyone would turn, a, turn away a, a, a check, um, but it's truly not reconciliation if it's still done with, I want to get my trophy for being a good white person. Is there a trophy for that? <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a participation trophy, isn't it? Well, that's what I was going to say. I think it's the one that I got in T-ball. <laughs> oh, boy. Alicia, look what you started. Uh, you know, I don't know how this is my fault. I went up to, so I went to this conference in Seattle, and there was a panelist of um, three, um, I say young men of color because they're younger than me. I'm 90% sure. And they talked about, they, they were sharing their stories of what it looks like to pastor churches in, um, you know, redlined neighborhoods and what that looks like. And like, as each one of them was sharing their stories, the other two were nodding in agreement and talking about, um, you know, people crossing the street and not making eye contact. And, um, you get the sense when these men are sharing their stories, like this isn't a once in a while thing. This is all the time. And um, they talked about who gets money for churches and what neighborhoods. And um, so I, I have to admit, I have a bias against old white guys right now. It's a problem. Um, but at the end they opened it up for questions and this guy, the old white oh, guy in the room, And I'm sure he's a very nice man. I'm sure he is. But he started talking about like he left seminary and was given over a hundred grand to plant a church. And he literally was talking about the things that these men had just talked about. 
And it felt to me like he just wanted a pat on the back for being a good guy. And I'm like, there's no trophy for being a decent human being. Just, it was, it's really frustrating. I, from my perspective, like I, I was, I didn't know what to say in the moment. And I may have ranted about it for about two hours on the way home from Seattle. Um, Like, what is my like, I don't want to step on anybody's toes. And the panelists were super gracious to this guy and thanked him for sharing. And it's kind of that environment anyway. But at the same time, I'm like, so what? So you're not actively racist. You don't get, there's no, there isn't a trophy of participation. You don't get a pat on the back. And expecting these panelists to validate your humanness in that way is just kind of gross. And uh, Sorry, I'm ranty. That's why every old white guy that speaks at a conference should actually be in like the dunk tank. And when they start to do that, you throw the softball yes. and just dunk them. Fortunately, it wasn't a speaker. Like the at this event, they really prioritize people of color and women, and it was that was the majority of the speakers. And this was just a dude in the room who had his feelings, I don't know, triggered or something. It was it was great. Mm. Here's a surprise. You don't have to be an old white guy to present that. Um, you can be a young white guy. You can be a middle-aged native guy. Uh, you can be a woman. Um, and, and I realize that there's a sort of a, you know, an area where, but, but um, it's a pretty common thing because it is normal, because it is the standard. And, and when you completely go against the standard, um, I guess, you know, I guess I don't feel strong. I guess, like, people do deserve some recognition for um, doing the right thing. You know, I think anytime anybody stands up and does the right thing, you know, they need to be respected for it some way. But, you know. I, I get what you're saying. I just, I just um, want to honor the people who do sacrifice something in a system to um, to do the right thing. Yeah. Wow! Wow! So, two quick things. Um, I just want to say that that was quite an opening uh, savo, uh, and I. This is why I love this format of the Zoom chats. Is I, I just I think the Having people at the table, the conversation, um, it's always goes in a direction and people integrate things that, that, you know, I may not have thought of yet. And it always just illuminates something that clearly needed to be addressed. So I want to say thank you for that. The other thing is, Randy, you know, this most recent episode on co-learning is getting way more play than any of our previous episodes. People are clearly engaged. Great. I'm, uh, I, I guess I'm surprised, but um, I, I'm surprised because maybe not that many people I would think would be interested in how you learn. Um, but I'm really glad that they are because this is how we continue to, as Paulo Freire said, this is how we continue to oppress the masses is by the way that we do it, not necessarily the content. Wow. Uh, Ryan, anything you want to touch on before we move on? 
any previous episodes uh, pique your interest or? No. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> you do listen to the podcast, right? <laughs> Every day, several times a day. No, I keep up with it. I'm joking. I'm joking. I mean, I have to. Have, <laughs> I mean, something has to fill my time during the day. Yeah. Okay. Well, with the time we have left, we don't have to talk about anything that we've covered so far. I'm wondering if uh, if anybody brought something to the table for our wild card round that we haven't addressed in previous episodes that they wanted to to bring up. So, so I mentioned this to Randy and Alicia, and I don't know why it it, it shocked me. It, it, the day that I've dreaded for years. Uh, finally happened where my oldest was called a beaner in her uh, school at, at recess because she has Mexican heritage. And I knew that was going to happen. And it still, it still blew my mind. It, made me feel powerless and unsafe. And I'm like, what is my problem? Uh, I'm a white guy and, you know, I, I think she's okay. It doesn't seem to be bothering her. I mean, she was in tears, but, you know, she, I, you know, was like, well, you can be proud of who you are and all this. And okay, daddy. And like, went off and played, but like, it just wrecked me for two days. I'm like, what the heck is going on? So, I, you know, I'm still kind of confused by that, but for me, I just, you know, realized even more that for me, this is more than just, uh, the fight against white supremacy is more than just a fight that is a good fight. Uh, it's much more personal than I realized because I'm fighting for my family and my children and my children's children. Um, but yeah, it was just weird. Like, I'm not sure. I mean, this happens all the time for for people of color, probably more so. Um, and I don't know why it it, it affected me in, in that way. So I was just, you know, I thought that was intriguing. So I just want to say, because we had this conversation after you, after this happened, I appreciated that when we talked about it, um, while you said you didn't want her to sit in that space of being a victim, you also acknowledged that it was hurtful to her. And, um, you know, you gave her space to have those feelings and didn't just try and brush it off as not that big of a deal, but didn't blow it out of proportion either. Um, so yeah. I, th- I think you did a good job parenting her through that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I wanted to just hold her in my arms forever and then wrap her in like Nerf um, and like send her back out. (laughs) But it was like, there was this other part of me that's like, I want you to also, I want you to have the feelings, uh, hon, but I also want you to be a warrior. Yeah. And and it's, yeah, I'm not sure how to reconcile that, but that's kind of how I felt. But I I think for me, like, as a woman, um, having those, like this painful thing acknowledged, but also you, you can have those feelings, but you can also be strong in it. And it wasn't either or. And so I just wanted to validate your parenting. Yeah. Sometimes I actually end up not making huge mistakes. (laughs) Well, this is one you can put up for a win. 
Good job. Do I get a participation trophy? I have a whole stack of them just for you. Yes. <laughs> Alicia, do you have anything you want to bring to the table? Yeah, no. I was like talking to my friends before the start. I'm like, so we're recording the podcast this morning and I have nothing on my list of things to talk about. So I'm just sort of in this space of waiting to see what happens and um, being open to what conversations happen. I did not have a list. It's the end of the semester. So (laughs) (laughs) my brain has been. Everybody's burnout, students and faculty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, this has been a very good, lively conversation, and I think it'll tr- translate well uh, to the audio for the podcast. A couple of things I wanted to mention coming up this, this Tuesday night, we're going to try the reading group again. I made a major mistake on two weeks ago when we tried to do round one of the reading group. Um, I updated my Zoom. Uh, program and it came with a new interface when you first open it and it comes with a new button that said start a meeting and I since I already had the reading group scheduled I thought that's the meeting it would start it didn't it started a different room and I was the only one in it so I had no conversation partners so I shut it down and I left I get home and I check my email and it says your participants are waiting for you in this room and I noticed that the room number is different than the room. I, it was just a tech glitch. So we're going to try it again this Tuesday night at 5.30 p.m. Pacific. And we're going to do Shalom in the Community of Creation. And we're going to do the first two-thirds of it because Randy will be joining us in, in two weeks after that uh, to dialogue with people about the, the closing part of the book. So I just wanted to say I apologize for my tech fail. And uh, I know I really gummed it up and that there were a lot of people actually were waiting to participate. And I was a no-show. That was frustrating. And it's the first time I've ever gotten something that wrong with tech. So I'm a little embarrassed. But anyway, we're going to try it again. Second, Real quick, I would just say that you probably gave all the people who didn't really read it now time to read it. (laughs) That's very gracious of you. Uh, second thing is I just want to lift up a prayer this morning. Uh, my friend Rachel Held Evans uh, has been in a medically induced coma. They, she's gone to a third hospital. They're going to try and wean her off of the coma medicine as she comes out of it. And I just want to lift up her and her whole family this morning. And, yeah, uh, we've, been, we've been saying prayers for her. But... I just checked um, and on Rachel Held Evans and Sarah Bessie just posted that she passed away this morning. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So Sarah Bessie said, it is with a broken heart that I share with you that Rachel Held Evans passed away early this morning. She's oh, just, man. She took a serious turn on Thursday morning and deteriorated quickly. Uh, she passed away in the early mornings of May 4th, 2019. She was surrounded by her family and her close friends. We sang and we prayed and we held her always. We are grateful for your prayers and for all the ways you have supported not only her, but her family, especially Dan and the kids. Damn it. Oh, what a loss. She was, she was amazing. Yeah. Mm. 
Well, I suppose we should end it at that. Yeah. And we all go grieve. Yeah. We will pray for her husband, Dan, and her two kids and their whole family as they uh, deal with this devastating loss. And, um, boy, yeah. Maybe in a future episode, I will tell my uh, favorite Rachel Held Evans story and honor her. She was amazing. All right. Well, thank you both, Alicia and Ryan, for being here this morning. Um, obviously, this is a terrible, terrible note to end on. So I'm so sorry. Yeah, I don't think I, I don't even know how to close. <laughs>